This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff that's going on in your life, anything and everything. I'll do the best I can. You need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Once more, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app at the call now. A banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Everything else will be hands-free. Uh, because it's Wednesday, tonight we have a Bible study here at Calvary Chapel. I'm teaching a great chapter, Genesis chapter 17. Um, Abraham is 99 years old, and God shows up and just has a chat with him. It's just a, a wonderful chapter, so that's going to be on tonight at calvarysa.com. And for those of you who are in the area and part of the church, uh, we will be meeting in person at 7 o'clock. And that also means, obviously, that tomorrow is Thursday, the date day show. Paula will be live in studio uh, with me. So, uh, ladies, especially for you, whatever's on your heart, uh, she'll be able to deal with. Okay, let me get to some questions while we await your phone calls. The first one comes from George. He says, are there modern-day apostles? Not in the sense that Peter, James, John, Paul, Matthew, and the others were apostles, George. Not at all. Uh, The apostles, Ephesians chapter 2, makes really clear the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And the Greek makes it clear that the apostles, that foundation, has already been laid. The church is being built on that foundation that's already laid. So there are no modern-day apostles. Now, you know the word means the sent one. And there's a lot of people who are sent. Church planners are sent. And, and, and in a minor sense, they're doing apostolic work. But they are not apostles. I think what you're asking about, George are the men, and in some cases even women, who are, are anointing themselves as apostles, um, um, and, and people are buying into the, the, the false teachings. So there are no modern-day apostles. There were 12 of them. Um, uh, Paul added another one. There are some others who are called apostles, Barnabas uh, and Silas, notable among them. Um, but 
um, no modern day apostles. And anybody who calls himself an apostle is, um, well, his doctrine is faulty, really, really faulty. Here is another question. This one is from Adam. It says, when John says to test the spirits, how do we do that? People who contradict the Bible also, they are speaking by the Holy Spirit. Adam, that is a huge problem, and you've identified it correctly. Now, John, 1 John 4, 1 says, Brothers, test the spirits, because not every spirit is from God. And John is acknowledging that there's a whole bunch of spirits out there talking to us. And that's why we have to really, really test them. Now, John specifically was dealing with the heresy called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics say that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He may have appeared in the flesh, sort of like an apparition. And, and we could have touched him and felt him, but it wasn't really him. Because the Gnostics believed that spirit and, and flesh had no connection. They had nothing in common. God, who is holy, would never allow human flesh to come. So what the Gnostics said was that, yeah, he's God, but he wasn't human. And so John says, here's the way that you can test that heresy is, is any spirit that says Jesus did not come in the flesh is a liar. So we test it against the word of God. On a larger scale, Adam, we have the whole word of God that we are to test the spirits with. So when somebody says something about Jesus, for instance, when the Mormons say that he is a spirit brother of Lucifer, or when the Jehovah's Witnesses indicate that he is Michael the Archangel, you can test those lying spirits against the Word of God, and we have a, a, um, an accurate measuring stick to determine whether that's true doctrine or false doctrine. So that's what John was talking about in context. That's Gnosticism. You know what's interesting to me, Adam, is that, that uh, how things have flipped. You know, in the first century, when John was writing First John, um, um, there was no doubt that Jesus was God. The, the argument was whether or not he was ever really human. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, and it's just flipped around. People don't deny the historicity of Jesus. Sure, he was a real person. Sure, he lived. I mean, the, the evidence is overwhelming. But what they die, deny today is the deity of Jesus. So that's why we have to test the spirit there as well. Now, there's another sense in which we need to test the spirits, Adam. It's not just regarding false doctrine. It's regarding those things that we think we hear from the Lord. You know, when, when I go out and take my long prayer walks with the Lord, and I, I just, I, I'm desperate to hear his voice. Uh, it's one of those things where I can sit down and say, well, Lord... Um, what do I do about this? And, and when, when I feel like God's speaking to my heart, then I have to measure what I think God has spoken against what I know about God's Word. I've had people say, well, you know, I asked God and He told me it was okay to get divorced. I'm talking about somebody who didn't have any biblical grounds to do it. God told me He wants me to be happy and it's okay for me to get divorced. And I can tell them that's not God. Well, I think it was. He was speaking very clearly to me, and here's how it happened. It's not the Lord. He never can contradict himself. So we can, contradict, we, can, we can test the spirits doctrinally, but we also need to be able and willing to test the spirits relationally as we're seeking direction from the Lord. And when people who contradict the Bible, the already revealed word and will of God, when they say they are speaking by the Holy Spirit, Adam, that points them out as false teachers. 
And we need to be careful of those people and discerning when it comes to listening to anything that they have to say. It's interesting, I had a question on the program yesterday, Adam, uh, from somebody, well, should I listen to people who have different doctrinal positions? And my, my answer was yes. That's one of the ways that we um, reaffirm what we believe. It's one way that we can um, make sure that we're walking the right path as we pursue the will of God. Um, but the fact that they have doctrine that we disagree with doesn't make them false teachers. It's just a different doctrinal position. They're viewing things through a different perspective or even better through a different systematic theology. But the final measuring stick is the Word of God, not a systematic theology. And so we've always got to be careful to test the spirits. Whenever I'm asking God a question... I've got this struggle between flesh and spirit that's always going on. And what I always want to remember is, Lord, I want your will, not my will to be done. And it's so easy. The enemy is out there lying and deceiving. And and it's easy because there's times when I feel like I'm hearing the Spirit of God say to me exactly what I want to hear. And that's when I've really got to slow down and test the spirits. So, Adam, thanks. I hope that makes sense to you because this is a really important question you asked. Uh, Benjamin says, Pastor On is being filled with the Holy Spirit, the same thing as the fruits of the Spirit. Um, No, Benjamin, it's not. They're two different things. Now, if you are filled with the Spirit, then your life will be abundantly filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Those are the things. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. It is impossible to produce those fruits unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about just having the Holy Spirit because we're saved, but I'm talking about walking in that relationship where there's power that's available to us every day. And truth is, Benjamin, in our flesh is nothing good. And if we're not connected to that source of power, then everything that we're going to do is going to be done by our flesh or according to the flesh. And then we can't be kind. We can't be loving. We can't be gentle. We, we can't be any of those fruits of the Spirit on our own, no matter how hard we try. Now, maybe we can do it a little bit for a minute. But we can't do it. That's why we must be connected to the source of power. And that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One other thought here, Benjamin, the key to being filled, and that's that's empowered by the Spirit, and I choose, I, I prefer that word, is to be obedient. Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit, context there is in power, to those who obey him. That's really, really important, Benjamin. Good question. Thank you for asking it. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Abraham. Tonight, Abraham, I'm teaching Genesis 17 where I finally get to stop saying Abram because God changes his name to Abraham. So I'm happy about that. Abraham's question is, when should someone consider leaving their church? Um, Abraham, that's a really personal question, but but I, I can say this. We, we shouldn't leave a church just because we disagree with something that's happened. Um, 
you know, I don't know why it is. You know, I'll have people say all the time, you know, God told me to come here. And then they get upset with me or they, they, they disagree with me on a particular doctrine. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm going to leave the church. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't God tell you to come? Maybe he wants you to learn something. Maybe he wants you to sit and humble yourself. So that's never a time to leave a church. I think, Abraham, the time to leave a church is when you recognize there is false doctrine. I think if there is doctrine that is not heretical, but differs largely from what you believe, then how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? And you ought to do that. I think you should leave a church when sin isn't dealt with. I, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I think when you're in church and they just sort of overlook sin, then it's time to leave that church because there's no power in that church. I think you should leave a church when the Word of God is not being taught, the whole counsel of God. If you're going to a church, it is just doing topical sermons or sermon series all the time. It's impossible to get the whole counsel of God. And, and uh, you know, how can you get fed? How can your mind be renewed unless you're getting the whole counsel of God? So I think those are times to consider leaving a church. But you do that prayerfully. You do that uh, with gentleness and respect. You don't burn bridges. You don't say bad things. You don't air dirty laundry. You just go. And then let the Spirit lead in terms of where you're going to church. You know, Abraham, when when uh, uh, people come into our church, and this is true for all of the years we've been here, and if they come in and they say, well, boy, I'm finally glad I'm in a good church. My old pastor this, my old pastor that. I always tell them, you know, you need not to talk about him like that. Because if you're talking about him like that, you're going to be talking about me like that one day as well. So we just have to be godly men and women. If you're not getting fed, if you're not growing, if there's no opportunity to serve and use the gifts God has given you, those are the legitimate reasons to leave your church. But not just because there's a doctrine that you disagree with him on. If you disagree, you disagree. But remember, if the Spirit led you to a church, he wants you to be fruitful there. So unless you have good reasons, the reasons that I spoke about, then I wouldn't think considering leaving a church is appropriate. You don't leave it because there's something bigger, there's something flashier, um, because there is a pastor that you can hear on the radio who who uh, is more exciting. Those are not reasons to leave a church at all. Let's go to the phones. We've got Reuben from Seguin on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. I pray that you're blessed today. Thank you, Reuben. I am. I hope I hope uh, nobody gets tired of hearing me call you almost every week now. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just Reuben. So... I get I, I get I get emails all the time. People telling me, "No, we like hearing from Reuben, so don't worry. Once a day is okay. enough." But other than that, you're on your own. <laughs> That's good. Um, just two quick questions. Uh, actually, three, really quick. Um, um, as you know, our, I just finished the book of Daniel. I didn't realize it was only 12 chapters. Um, do you have an in-depth study of the book of Daniel online? And um, 
can the book of Daniel chapter 12 and revelations coincide uh, talking about the end times I'm assuming that the angel was was telling Daniel about our time um, the end time and um, the second question is can people who pass away um, can they they can no longer like hear us right like if we go outside and look up to the sky and talk to them and they can no longer hear us correct or, or what that, that's that's correct yeah okay okay um well that's that's a question that i had um and okay I'll, if, and i'll listen to you on the app okay thank you ruben god bless you appreciate it very very much um let me answer the last one because it's easy you know dead people uh people that are are in heaven um certainly people that are in the place of torment they can't hear us um, there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more grief uh, in heaven. If they were listening to us, that would be grieving. So, no, they 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 cannot hear us. Uh, we do that, Robert, um, because it makes us feel better. We talk to people that we love, and there's nothing um, sinful about that. I think it's unproductive. But but here's what I do. I've, I've got some people that we've lost over the years that have been very very close to me. Um, uh, and and I will say to the Lord, Lord, would you please say hi to Nehemiah for me? Would you please say hello to Kuka for me? Would you please let Davina know how much I love her and miss her and 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 for Sue and there's some others, but um, you know, I, and I don't do that on a daily basis, but really, really often I do uh, because it's important to me. I I just I want that connection. I can't wait to see those people again. It makes heaven. Uh, even more urgent for me. With regard to Daniel, uh, my studies, I have not only my my commentary online, Ruben, but the entire um, series of messages in Daniel. And um, it's all free, so you're welcome to take it. And uh, I I love the book, so I had a lot of fun with it, just, just if you've enjoyed it. So yeah, all of that is available for free at Calvary S.A. Dot com, And regarding Daniel 12 and Revelation, yeah, part of it you can. Um, uh, there, there's a connection between the Great Tribulation and, and uh, Daniel 11 and 12. 11 is more short-term fulfillment of prophecy, and chapter 12 goes a little bit farther down the corridor of time and space. So um, enjoy. I, I hope the, the commentary that I have on there... Uh, is a blessing. Thank you very much. Let's go to Spicewood, Texas, wherever that is, and talk with Robert online, too. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Hey, I, I'm, I try to read the Proverbs and Psalms every day, and one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 30. And I'm wondering, do we know anything else about the fellow that wrote that, Agur? Anywhere else in the Old Testament, or is there any other genealogy or history for him, or any connections that we know about him? No, we really don't. The, the, the one thing that we can uh, reasonably assume, and I'm going to pull it up here, Robert, just one second. Um, we can reasonably assume that, that this guy was um, a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, or perhaps part of the house of those in Israel who worshipped um, but um, the, the, obviously 30 and 31 are the two Proverbs not written by Solomon. And um, um, 
because this is an oracle or a prophecy, um, I think the assumption that we can have is that this is, in fact, um, uh, somebody held in high standing, somebody who, who had a relationship with God and spoke to him and with him and even for him sometimes. Uh, I like this one. I also like Proverb 31 a lot. Um, so um, this is a man that, that was included in the canon uh, when it wasn't Solomon who wrote it. So, Robert, I'm sorry, there's just no information for sure about who this guy is. He doesn't appear in any of the other genealogies that I'm aware of um, throughout the book of of Proverbs. Does that help you? I wasn't missing something, because I, I had... I haven't been able to locate him anywhere else either, so I just want to know I wasn't missing something. But, uh, nope. but those are some of my favorites. And really appreciate uh, all you do on the show here and, and your minutes. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate the, the the kind words. Thank you very, very much. You know, when Ager starts out, and I love, I love this, he, he starts out by saying, um... Um, I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? This is a humble guy. And, and, and you know, when, when he gets to verse 5 and says, every word of God is flawless, um, you know that this is coming from the heart and from the throne of God. Thank you for that, Robert. Appreciate it very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. I often disagree with the way my church spends their money. Is it okay for me to give my tithes to people who are in need instead of giving to my church? Uh, anonymous, it's, it's your money. At least you are in stewardship of that money. And uh, you can do with it what you want. Now, I want you to understand that... It's really God's money, and you're going to give account of that stewardship? And one question that immediately comes to mind that I think Jesus would ask is, well, why are you going to a church that you can't support with your needs, with your, with your finances, rather? And, and you've got to come up with a good question, and maybe that church is not the church for you. Maybe sometimes... You've just got to get to the place where you say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I don't know, you didn't indicate in your question what are the, the, the areas that you disagree with, the way the church is spending their money, but, but if this is the church that God has directed you to, then I personally think you are obligated, not in the, uh, the sense of the law, I think you're obligated to support the work that church has done. Now, if you've got other money that you want to use to give to people in need, God bless you. And uh, Proverbs 11 says, a generous man himself will be blessed by God. But um, to sit in the church and say, well, they're not going to get my money because I don't agree with this, I don't agree with that. You know, Anonymous, one of the things that happens in churches all the time, you get people that come in and they'll, they'll want to give, but they'll want control over what that money does. Well, I'll give this, but I want it to go to here. I want it to go to here. And we tell people here at Calvary Chapel, well, you know, maybe it's best if you don't give. We've got a direction God has given us. The people in this church support that vision, that direction. 
And if you can't do that, then just don't give. There's no real reward for doing that. So I think when you have a different perspective about your money and you realize, God, it's not your money. I mean, it's not my money. It's your money. And this is the church that we're to support. And Paul makes it clear that we are to support the local congregation. That's the first place money should go. Now, let me also say this whole idea of tithing is not a New Testament principle. I know we use the word. I know we like to give 10%. That's a very safe amount of money to give. But but that's certainly not what the New Testament says, that we owe God everything. So here's what you do, Anonymous. You, you ask God, what do you want me to do with your money? I always find it sort of offensive. At least if I was God, I would be offended. No, I'm not God. God doesn't get offended. But, but uh, you know, okay, God, I got 10 bucks. One's for you, nine's for me. Think about the absurdity of that for a moment. What you do is you say and said, Lord, you gave everything for us. You emptied the bank of heaven for me. So what I'm going to do is offer you everything I have. How do you want me to use it? Now he's going to let you keep most of it. But you need to remember, you're going to give account for what you give. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word of Stand Up For Life. We'd love your live calls. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our final half hour today. Remember, Paul is going to be live in studio with me tomorrow at 4 o'clock, and we would love to have your questions or comments about anything that's on her heart. And I don't know what that is. I won't know till we get here tomorrow. Here is a question from Amos. He says, it seems like preachers like you. I stopped there for emphasis. You people is what he's saying. It seems like preachers like you seem to want Christians to be poor. I think God wants us to be prosperous. Why am I wrong? Well, I'm wrong. Or you're, you're wrong, Amos, because you don't read your Bible. It's that simple. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you want. The only thing that matters is what is God's will. And God says that we're to be servants. Jesus was poor. Paul was poor. Money wasn't an object for them. Money seems to be the, the driving force behind this question. You, you think God wants you to be prosperous? Or, or are you honest enough to say, no, it's what I want? And you have evidently been influenced by either your flesh or by churches that teach one of the most wicked false gospels out there, the health and prosperity, the health and wealth um, false gospel. 
God doesn't care at all whether or not we're prosperous. Our future is prosperous beyond description. But you see, here, nothing that we have belongs to us. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It leads you into bad places. You know, one of the things I've learned, Amos, is that we end up being like the God, the little G God that we serve. Money is cold. Money is undependable. And that's what we become if we pursue it. So I would just plead with you, Amos, to read your Bible. Actually read it. Don't listen to what somebody else says. Read it. And see if you can find a single passage in the Scripture that says, God, I want his people to be wealthy or wants them to be prosperous. It's a really important question for you to resolve because there is no conceivable way that you can know the heart of God or have the heart of God when you're chasing money. It's that simple. And if you want to follow up with a, a question, I'm more than happy to do that. Let's go to Cibolo, Texas and talk with John on line one. John, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, John. How are you? Okay, John, you're, you're, you're breaking up just a little bit. Maybe you can move back where you were. John, I'm going to I'm going to stop you and and I'm going to put you on hold for a minute and ask you maybe either to call right back or pick up the phone instead of using the the speakerphone for just a minute um, because you're breaking up really really badly and and uh, I'm sorry about that but hold on and and we'll we'll just come back to you in just a minute. Let me see if I get a really quick question, then we can go back and hope John's is... Here's a quick one from Queen. Is being slain in the spirit real? Um, I, I think it is real. It's just not from God, Queen. Um, there's real power sometimes. I think it's a, a, an evil source of the power. But at the same time, um, there, there's nothing godly about it. It is not the Holy Spirit directing it. It is the unholy spirit Uh, And it just is more of the same kind of silliness that we get in churches that really aren't um, interested in really what the Word of God says. So, Queen, don't participate in a church that is knocking people over. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit's in charge... It's not going to be any of that out-of-control nonsense. Let's try line one again and see if we got John on a better connection. John, are you there? John? Oh, okay, John, maybe please call back. I'm, I'm always interested in your questions. 340-9585. Edward says, Why do some churches speak in tongues altogether and other churches don't speak in tongues at all in their services? Well, Edward, the, the churches that, that where everybody's speaking in tongues, um, that's a church that's out of order. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, that, that's a church that is in defiance of the rules of the one who gave the Holy Spirit to us. It's really important. You know, uh, when, when we're speaking in tongues altogether, 
Paul says if an unbeliever were to come in and see that mess, he, he would think we're all crazy, and he would be right to think that. There's, there's nothing that makes sense there. So whenever you see, and these are, are what I call them crazy charismatic churches, or Pentecostal churches, when you see people um, um, speaking in tongues all at the same time, that's in violation of the way we're told to use the gift of tongues in the church when we use that gift. If anyone speaks in a tongue, talking about in the assembly, let him let one, two, uh, at the most, speak, but always with an interpretation. So when everybody's doing it all at once, it's just out of control. Um, I think the reason, Edward, that, that a lot of churches like ours don't speak in tongues during our services is because our services are devoted to two things, worship and the teaching of the Word of God. And, um, you know, to exercise the gifts of the Spirit in a way that would interrupt what the Holy Spirit is doing through His Word is simply not something that would be be done in an orderly church. Now, again, I'm speaking, Edward, as somebody who has the gift of tongues, and we give place for it when we have afterglows. Um, but, but on the Sunday services... Um, there just isn't any value in doing it, especially with the limited time. In our case, Edward, we've got three morning services on Sunday, and we're on a tight schedule. And that's not quenching the Spirit. That's simply prioritizing the work, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And the way we do that, Edward, is by teaching the Word, preparing people to use the gifts that God has given them. So hope that makes sense to you. We've got got John back on line one. John, thank you very much for being patient with me and calling back here on the air. No problem. Um, I I have two questions for you. The first is, in the book of Jeremiah, towards the end, he talks about the the destruction of Babylon and how no one will ever live there again. And it's just going to be... uh, with wild animals there but in the book of revelation it talks about the antichrist rebuilding babylon and that would be his headquarters so Mm -hmm. i don't understand uh what's going on there and then my other question is in the book of uh, ezekiel chapters 44 and 45 he talks about a prince and the property that he owns and I don't believe that's Jesus. I just wonder who that is and what his function will be. <laughs> I love that question, John. Thank you very much. I'll get those. Um, in Jeremiah's prophecy, the destruction of Babylon, you can read about the destruction of Babylon uh, in the Great Tribulation. So that is a long-range prophecy that will be fulfilled uh, at the end of the Great Tribulation. And when Babylon is completely destroyed, no one will live in it again. It will sort of be, um, you know, you, you can go into, into California, the Salton Sea, you can go to Israel, the Dead Sea, and you just see there's no life there. Well, that's what it's going to be, Tyre and Sidon. Uh, were, were destroyed. Um, Damascus, the Bible says Damascus, Syria, will be destroyed in one hour. Not, not literally an hour, but it's a, a biblical way of saying suddenly. Um, those are prophecies in the future. And so Babylon will be destroyed. In fact, in Revelation, 
We've got the destruction of um, ecclesiastical Babylon, uh, the false prophet. We've got the destruction of economic Babylon, uh, the world's economy and the system uh, for economics in the world is going to be destroyed. And then you've got literal Babylon that is going to be destroyed. So what Jeremiah is talking about is a long term going down to the, 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 the corridor of time and space to the end of the world. And Babylon will be deserted. And uh, it, it's sort of God saying, you know, what the world has valued as important is not important at all. And God will set that right. In Ezekiel, the prince of Israel. Now, this is, this is um, you're right, it's not Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He will sit on the throne. We, we need to remember that when... Jesus was approached by John and James, the sons of thunder, their mother. When he was approached um, by, by her, she said, can you grant that my sons, these two sons of mine, one will sit on your right and one will sit on your left when you come into your kingdom. And you remember, John, that Jesus said, those seats are not mine to give. Those seats are given by my father. In other words, uh, you're asking for too much. That's not up to me. Those seats have been given. Well, one of those seats is is this prince of Israel. The other seat is going to be somebody reflective of the New Testament. Let me tell you who I believe with all of my heart there. Now, I know who, who the prince of Israel is. That's going to be King David. King David, a man after God's own heart, is going to be occupied one of those seats. And he is Ezekiel's prince um, during the millennium. So... Um, Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart, not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, that will be David. The other seat, John, I believe, with all my heart, is given to the Apostle Paul. So I think those are the two seats. They're already occupied, and when we come into the millennium, um, we will be able to see them any time that we go to see Jesus in Jerusalem. So, good question. I like that very, very much. Thank you, John. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Philip. He says, How do I explain to Christians who are actively homosexual that they are wrong? Um, Philip, you know, if a Christian is willfully and actively homosexual, uh, the way you respond to them is that they're not really a Christian at all. 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 6, Galatians chapter 5 says that if you live like this, and it doesn't mean somebody who occasionally falls into sin, so there's no condemnation here, but someone whose life is characterized by the sin of homosexuality or other sins, this is just the one that you asked about, uh, if somebody's life is characterized by that, Jesus said they will in no way inherit the kingdom of God. Actually, Paul said it, Jesus through Paul. So what you tell somebody is, look, you can think you're a Christian, you can hope you're a Christian, but you can't explain away the passages in 1 Corinthians 6 or Galatians chapter 5. You simply can't explain them away. So here's what you do. You tell them, look, I'm going to be praying for you because a Christian cannot actively oppose God and still consider themselves a Christian. And as harsh as that sounds to some, that is the only explanation. Um, They are not truly Christians at all. Christians in name, um, 
having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Let's go to Ron from Mason County. Ron, good to hear from you again. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Appreciate your comments comments on the New Testament in terms of giving versus tithing in the Old Testament. Just like to know what your answer is to the people who who want to use Melchizedek and Abraham's uh, the story in in Hebrews as New Testament justification for for some sort of tithing, although that was kind of the spoil of war and didn't even qualify in my mind. But how do you answer those people who use that as justification for tithing today? Um, I, I run. I'll talk about Melchizedek in a moment and and and, and the, the the law of tithing uh, in the law of Moses. But but the one thing that we need to remember always is Jesus, when he left, he said, this is the covenant, the new covenant written in my blood. Now, over and over, we've got the, the new covenant cancels the old one. So we, people need to look a little deeper into these things. If we've got a new covenant, if I'm driving on the freeway and forever the speed limit has been 60, and, and there's a proclamation that says from now on the speed limit is 80, then you don't have to go 60. Well, that's the same thing Jesus said. This is a new covenant written in my blood. It cancels the code that was against us. So, Ron, we're not under law. We're simply under grace. And why somebody would think they could give under grace, which is infinitely greater than law, the same as law demanded, just just never cease to amaze me. Now, why do people then use the tithe, and why do Christian pastors who who will acknowledge that, well, you know, there's really nothing about tithing in the New Testament. You're supposed to give with a cheerful heart. You're supposed to give um, um, out of the abundance of love and gratitude that you have in your heart. Well, they'll say, well, no, no, the, the tithe was established even before the law with Jesus and Melchizedek. Abraham gave, Melchizedek was Jesus in pre-incarnate appearance, but, but Paul gave Melchizedek a 10% of the spoils. So that's it's a pattern. That pattern has continued in the Old Testament under the law. That means God's intention was to, to continue that pattern throughout the New Covenant. But that's really, really bad logic. Now the question, Ron, is why would pastors do that? And I think there is a very simple reason, and I think it's really a lack of faith. I think it's a lack of faith. I think if I can convince everybody in the church to give 10%, and by the way, most people don't give anywhere close to 10% in the New Testament church, but if I can convince everybody, if I can obligate them to give 10%, then I can budget, and I can figure out what we're going to do, how much money we're going to have, and while all of that is helpful, certainly, I think rather than depend on drawing up a budget based on what people pledge they'll give, I think we ought to just trust God that he will be the one who provides. I've had some really big givers who over the years have left the church and it was like, well, boy, you're going to really miss my my giving because I wouldn't do something they wanted me to do. And I always tell them, look, I'm going to miss you, but I'm not going to miss your giving. God always replaces that. Money's no object for God. Your money offers an opportunity for you to be blessed by the Lord. 
but don't think that this church or any other church depends on your offerings. And I, I think too many of us as pastors, uh, we like the comfort of being able to budget. We like the comfort of obligating people to give. And um, I, I think we're missing out on wonderful opportunities. One of the questions, Rob, Ron, is that, that why would people want to give 10%? And I think it's because it limits the amount of money they have to give. I think they can look at that. I mentioned this with an earlier question. I, I think if, if, if I can say every $10 I get, nine belongs to me, one belongs to God, that's comfortable. That's really not much of a sacrifice at all. And so we like being told what to give. When people ask me, well, what should I give? Should I give 10%? I always answer the same way. Well, why don't you pray and ask God what he wants to give? It's his money. So ask God what he wants to give. And, you know, we've never been able to do a budget, Ron, because we don't know who's giving what. We don't know how much we're going to get. We've always spent more, at least, than we would be able to budget. And God has always provided for us, and he's turned our body into a, a wonderfully generous group of people. But to, to infer um, that, well, he's established a pattern with Melchizedek, he, he, he accentuated that pattern under law, and so in the New Testament, God wants to continue that pattern. Uh, Mormons tithe. That's just bad logic, Ron. Thank you very much for the question. Let's go to Jimmy calling from San Antonio Online 1. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, I want to ask a question. Um, on Revelation 7, who are the 144,000? What does it say in Revelation 7, Jimmy? I don't have it with me right now. It says, okay. I, I was reading it, and it says something about uh, the filled with the Holy Spirit or... It, it sounds like they're not they're, they're without sin and God's chosen and that. okay this is very important uh, this is this is what the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have really gotten messed up of since their inception the 144,000 are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes so these are Jews each of the 12 tribes is equally represented. And these are men who have been preserved by God for this very mission, this very moment in time. And they're going to be evangelists. They're going to be prophets. They're going to declare the word of God. They're going to do miraculous powers. And they're going to lead the greatest revival, Jimmy, in the history of the world. Now, here's what I always tell people to, to think about. Th- consider 144,000 Apostle Pauls walking around in this world during the Great Tribulation. Now, the only difference is the Apostle Paul physically could be hurt and, and eventually killed, but these men are going to be marked by God preserved by God through the Great Tribulation. So their work isn't going to quit. And so they're going to be the men that God uses to go into the all the world 
and declare that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he is the Messiah, surrender to him. And no matter what the authorities try to do to them, there's nothing that they can do. These men will have a ministry that is is without limits, without limits whatsoever. And what a, what an exciting time that's going to be. So they're men who have been preserved by God. They've been kept holy. They haven't been with women. So these are men... Uh, sort of what God always intended the Levites to be, only sort of on steroids. So, Jimmy, 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that's the 144,000. And, you know, the Bible is so specific about who they are that I don't understand how anybody can get confused that that these are, are, are... the 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses are going to be found to be faithful and the only ones who are going to actually go to heaven. Thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate the question. We're inside three minutes, so let me get a pretty quick question. Let's go to the Great Tribulation again. This is from Teddy. He says, Will the third temple be built before or after the rapture? And is it Solomon's temple being rebuilt? Uh, Teddy, no, it'll be a completely new um, temple. You can read about it in, in many of the Old Testament prophets, notably Ezekiel. I love uh, the descriptions and the measuring. But the third temple will be a millennium temple. After the great, not a millennium temple, I'm sorry, but it will be a great tribulation temple. Uh, it will be the way that the man that we call the Antichrist is going to come to power. Uh, when the church is raptured, and we're taken out of here, and the whole world is in chaos, he's going to say that, uh, and, and this is speculation on my part, but he's basically going to say that, well, those Christians are gone, and they're not worthy to go into the next world, but together we can do this. And, and, and the way he's going to accomplish nations, the peoples are going to rejoice. And, and as, as you know, I'm sure, Teddy, on the, the, the Temple Mount, where Solomon built the original temple, that foundation is still laid. And when Jesus in Ezekiel says, measure the foundation, um, they're going to find that it's sitting right outside the the uh, Muslim mosque that's on that site right now. And he's going to say, see, we can have peace. We can have the Muslim temple, and we can have the Jewish temple, and we're going to put them together side by side and lead the world into a great new era. The problem, of course, is that three and a half years into the Great Tribulation, this temple is going to be desecrated by the Antichrist, and that's when Jews are going to rebel. They're going to run to the rock city of Petra in Jordan, and God will preserve them through the last terrible three and a half years of the Great Tribulation um, while the rest of the world literally falls apart. So the third temple is a Great Tribulation temple, and it will be built after the rapture of the church, and it will go up miraculously in terms of speed, It will be magnificent, and everybody will think there's peace. Jesus said, when they say peace and safety, watch out. Good question, Teddy. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for your calls. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Texas. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Day Day Show. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.